Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is For Reading Out Loud. So glad to have you with me this evening. Dashiell Hammett set the classic standards for hard-boiled detective fiction. Who can forget his great 1930 novel, The Maltese Falcon, featuring private detective Sam Spade, which later became a classic noir film starring Humphrey Bogart as Spade. The world Hammett's characters move in is dark, cynical, corrupt, and brutal. Hammett developed his craft in stories published in pulp fiction magazines like Black Mask, which was where the Maltese Falcon first appeared in serial form. But Dashiell Hammett also had an antic side that may surprise you, and he was not above satirizing the very genre that made him famous. Tonight's story has the trappings of Hammett's pulp fiction stories, but this one is very much tongue-in-cheek, and I hope you will enjoy the fun of this slightly preposterous tale and can imagine the smile on Dashiell Hammett's face as he wrote The Sign of the Potent Pills. The house was large and austerely symmetrical in the later Bourbon fashion. Its pilastered façade, factually of a light gray stone, was dully whitish in the morning sun. Level grass plots cut by sharp-edged paths spread around the house, holding it apart from its neighbors and from the street. The grass plots in turn were guarded from the outer world by a fence of iron pickets, unfriendly as so many tall black pikes. Just inside the fence's eastern line the billboard stood. Its wide back was to the house, its edge was to the street. It faced, with an outrageous red and green face advertising a forgotten cure-all, Pentner's Potent Pills, a porticoed house of red brick behind tiny hedges some twenty yards away. Hugh Trait, walking up from the car-line with that briskness which twenty-two need not temper to moderate hills, stared at the billboard's ugly discordance until he was nearly abreast of it, and its edge had become too meager to hold his attention. Then his attention passed on to the stone house, his destination. In front of the house a high grilled gate interrupted the black fence. It was a gate designed for shutting out rather than admitting, a gate wrought in lines as uninviting as the upright sharp pickets, but it was not locked. The young man closed it behind him and went up the walk to the house. The door was opened in response to the bell by a stolid, red-faced man of genial caste whose footman's clothes did not fit him very well. "'What do you want?' he asked. "'I should like to see Miss Newbrith. She ain't home. Sorry.' "'Wait a moment,' the young man insisted as the door began to close. "'I've an appointment. She phoned me. My name is Trait.' <laughs> "'That's different.' the stolid man said cheerfully, opening the door again and stepping to one side. "'Why didn't you say so? Come on in!' He closed the door behind the young man and started up a broad flight of stairs. "'Up this way!' On the second-floor landing the stolid man halted to face Trait again. "'You don't happen to be carrying a gun now, do you?' he asked pleasantly. "'Why, no.' "'You see, we can't take no chances,' the man explained and stepping close ran swift hands over Trait's hips, chest, and belly. "'We got to be mighty careful in a spot like this.' He stepped back and moved toward a broad closed door on the right, throwing a friendly, "'Come along!' 
over his shoulder. Eyes wide in surprise, Trait followed obediently to the door, which the man opened with a flourish. "'A young man to see Miss Newbrith!' he shouted merrily, bowing low with an absurd outflinging of his arms. When he straightened up, he added, "'Ha-ha-ha!' Hesitantly, Trait advanced into the room, wherein was nothing to set him immediately at ease. It was a drawing-room in gold and white, quite long, elaborate with the carved inlaid and stuccoed richness of the fourteenth Louis' day. Opaque blinds and heavy curtains hid the windows. A glittering chandelier lighted the room. From the farther end a dozen faces looked at Trait with indefinite expectancy. The owners of these faces had divided themselves into two groups, the larger numbered eight. They, no matter how comfortably established on chairs in this gold and white room, were unmistakably servants. Across the room from them the smaller group occupied more space. The eldest of these four sat upright in the middle of a sofa. He was small, slight, old, and well-preserved, except that his moustache, white as his hair, was ragged at one end with recent gnawing. To his right, a full-bodied woman of forty-something in a magenta frock leaned forward on her gilded chair and held a chonlevé vial near her thin nose. Beside her, a middle-aged man sat in a similar chair. He resembled, in younger, plumper mold, the man on the sofa, but was paler, more tired than the elder. The fourth member of the group stood up when Hugh came in. She derived from both the sitting men— a girl of less than twenty, small, with a daintiness of bone structure and fleshing, which, however delicate, had nothing to do with fragility. Her face was saved from the flat prettiness of mathematically proportioned features by her mouth. It was red, too narrow, full, and curiously creased. She took four steps toward Trait, stopped, looked past him at the door through which he had come, and at him again. "'Oh, Mr. Trait, it was so nice of you to come so quickly,' she said. The young man, still a dozen paces away, approached smiling somewhat stiffly, a little pink, looking at her with brown eyes that seemed uneasily aware of the concerted stare of the eleven other persons watching him with ambiguous hopefulness. He made a guttural gargling sound, in no way intelligible, but manifestly polite in intention. The girl took his hand— then his hat and overcoat, and turned with him to face the others. "'Grandad,' she said to the old man on the sofa, "'this is Mr. Trait. He—' She stopped, indicated something behind her by a swift sidewise jerk of her eyes, and nodded significantly. "'Say no more!' The old man's glance darted for a fleeting instant past Trait. A dry whisper crept from behind his white moustache. "'We are in your hands!' Trait said something like, uh, and shifted his feet uncertainly. The girl told him that the tired man and the woman in magenta were her parents, and now the woman spoke, her voice nasally querulous. The stout man is by far the most odious, and I do wish you would secure him first. She gestured with the Chonlevé vial toward the door. Two men stood in that end of the room. One was the stolid man who had opened the door, he nodded and grinned amiably at Trait. His companion scowled. The companion was a short man in shabby brown, with arms too long hanging from shoulders too broad. 
red-brown eyes peered malignantly from beneath the pulled-down visor of his cap. His face was dark, with a broad nose flat on his long and prominent upper lip above an outthrust chin. Trait looked from one new breath to another. "'I beg your pardon?' he asked. "'It's nothing,' the old man assured him. "'Your own way.' Trait frowned, questioning puzzlement at the girl. She laughed, the creases in her red mouth multiplying its curves. "'We must explain it to Mr. Trait. We can't expect him to guess the situation.' Old Newbreth's ragged moustache blew out from his mouth in a great blast of air. "'Explain? Didn't you—' "'There was no time,' said the girl. "'It took me nearly five minutes to get Mr. Trait on the wire, and by then they were hunting for me.' The old man leaned forward with bulging eyes. "'And you've no assistance? No men outside?' "'No, sir,' Trait said. The elder Newbreth looked at the girl's father, and the girl's father looked at him, each looking as if he found the sight of the other amazing. But the amazement with which they regarded one another was nothing to that with which they looked at the girl. The old man's small fingers crushed invisible things on the sofa beside his legs. "'Precisely what did you tell Mr. Trait, Brenda?' he asked. "'Why, I simply told him who I was, reminded him I had met him at the Sherman's, and asked him if he could run up here immediately. That was all.' "'There wasn't time for anything else, Grandad. They were already hunting for me.' "'Yes, they would be,' said the old man, softer of voice, his face angrier. "'So, instead of giving the alarm to the first voice you heard, you wasted five minutes getting this, um, young gentleman on the wire, and then hadn't time to do more than, uh, casually invite him to join us?' "'Oh, but really,' his granddaughter protested, "'Mr. Trait is very clever,' and I thought this would be such a wonderful chance for him to make a reputation at the very beginning of his career. Oh, the old man cooed, while wild lights twinkled in his eyes. So our young friend is at the very beginning of his career, is he? Yes. I met him at the Sherman's reception. He was guarding the presence, and he told me that this was his first case. He had only been a detective for three days then. Wasn't that it, Mr. Trait? Mr. Trait said, uh, yes without taking his eyes from the old man's face. "'So then our Mr. Trait has had by this time,' Newbreth was lisping with sweetness now, "'no less than ten days' experience. Eleven, Trait said, blushing a little. Old Newbreth said, "'Ah, eleven, to be sure,' and stood up. He smiled, and his face was swollen and purple. He plucked two buttons from his coat and threw them away. He found a yellow scarf to tear into strips and a handful of cigars to crunch into brown flakes. He took the Chonlevé vial from his daughter-in-law's hand and ground it under his heel. While thus engaged, he screamed that his granddaughter was an idiot, a fool, a loon, a moron, a dolt, an ass, a lunatic, a goose, a simpleton, a booby, a numbskull, an imbecile, and a half-wit. Then he relapsed on the sofa eyes closed, legs out, while daughter-in-law and granddaughter strove with loosening, fanning, chaffing hands to stop the bubbling in his upturned open mouth. "'What's the old boy up to now?' a very thin, squeaky voice asked. Its owner stood with the two men by the door. He was ridiculous. Well over six feet in height, he was a hill of flesh, a live sphere in loose gray clothes. His features were babyish, 
his round blue eyes, little lumpy nose, little soft mouth, all babyishly disposed, huddled together in the center of a great round face, between cheeks like melons, with smooth pink surfaces that seemed never to have needed shaving. Out of this childish mountain more piping words came. "'You oughtn't to let him carry on like that, Tom. First thing you know he'll be busting something and dying on us before we're through with him.' "'The young fellow did it,' replied the cheerful man in the footman's ill-fitting dress. "'Seems like he's a detective.' "'A detective!' The fat man's features gathered closer together in a juvenile pout, blue eyes staring glassily at Trait. "'Well, what does he come here for? We mustn't have detectives.' The long-armed, brutish man in brown took a shuffling step forward. "'I'll bust him one,' he suggested. "'No, no, Bill,' the fat man squeaked impatiently, still staring at Trait. "'That wouldn't help. He'd still be a detective. Oh, he ain't so much a one as we got to worry about.' the cheerful man said. Seems like he ain't been at it only eleven days, and he comes in not knowing no more what's what than the man in the moon. But fat fingers continued to pluck at the puckered baby's mouth, and the porcelain eyes neither blinked nor wavered from the young man's face. That's all right, the fat man squeaked, but what's he doing here? That's what I want to know. Seems like the kid got to the phone that time she slipped away from us in the mix-up before we brought him down here, and she gives this young fellow a rumble, but she's too rattle-brained to smart him up. He don't know nothing until he gets in. The mountainous man's distress lessened to a degree, permitting the removal of his stare from Trait, and he turned to the door. Well, maybe it's all right. His treble came over one of the thick pillows that were his shoulders. But you tell him that he's got to behave himself. He lumbered out, leaving the cheerful man and the malevolent man standing side by side, looking at Trait cheerfully and malevolently. The young man put his back to those parallel but unlike gazes, and found himself facing old Newbrith, who was sitting up on his sofa again, his eyes open, waving away his ministering womenfolk. Looking at Trait, the old man repeated the burden of his recently screamed complaint, but now in the milder tone of incomplete resignation. If she had to pick out one detective and bring him here blindfolded, why must she pick an amateur? No one had a direct reply to that. Trait mumbled an obvious something about everybody's having been a novice at one time. The old man readily, if somewhat nastily, conceded the truth of that, but God knew he had troubles enough without being made lesson two in a how-to-be-a-detective course. Now, Grandad, don't be unreasonable— Brenda Newbrith remonstrated. "'You've got no idea how clever Mr. Trait really is. He—' She smiled up at the young man. "'What was that awfully clever thing you said at the Shermans about democracy being government with the deuces wild?' The young man cleared his throat and smiled uncomfortably, and beyond that said nothing. The girl's father opened his tired eyes and became barely audible. "'Good Lord!' he murmured. A detective who amuses the guests with epigrams to keep them from making off with the wedding presents. You just wait, the girl said. You'll see, won't they, Mr. Trait? Mr. Trait said, Yes, uh, that, that is, well. Mrs. Newbrith, raising her eyes from the ruins of her vial on the floor, said, I don't understand what all this pother is about. If the young man is really a detective, he will arrest these criminals at once. If he isn't, he isn't and that's the end of it. 
though I grant that Brenda might have exercised greater judgment when she— "'Go ahead, young fellow,' Tom called encouragingly from the other end of the room. "'Detect something for the lady.' The man with the brutish muzzle also spoke. "'I wish Joe would let me take a poke at him,' he grumbled. "'You can save us, can't you, Mr. Trait?' the girl asked point-blank, looking up at him with blue eyes in which doubt was becoming faintly discernible. Trait flushed, cleared his throat. "'I'm not a policeman, Miss Newbrith, and I have no reason to believe that Mr. Newbrith wishes to engage my services.' "'None at all,' the old man agreed. The girl was not easily put aside. "'I engage you,' she told him. "'I'm sorry,' Trait said, "'but it would have to be Mr. Newbrith. "'That's silly, and besides,' If you succeeded in doing something, you know Grandad would reward you. Trait shook his head again. Ethical detectives do not operate on contingent fees, he said, as if reciting a recently studied lesson. Do you mean to do nothing? Are you trying to make me ridiculous? After I thought it would be such a wonderful opportunity for you, and gave you a chance any other man would jump at. Before Trait could reply to this, the fat man's treble was quivering in the room again. "'Didn't I tell you you would have to make him behave himself?' he asked his henchman. "'He's just arguing,' the stolid Tom defended Hugh. "'There ain't no harm in the boy.' "'Well, make him sit down and keep quiet.' The brutish Bill shuffled forward. "'He'll sit down, or I'll slap him down,' he promised. Hugh found a vacant gilt chair in a corner half behind the elder Newbrith's sofa. Bill said, "'Ah!' hesitated, looked back at the fat man, and returned to his post by the door. The mountain of flesh turned its child eyes on old Newbrith, raised a hand like an obese pink star, and beckoned with a finger that curved rather than crooked, so cased in flesh were its joints. Old Newbrith caught the unchewed end of his moustache in his mouth, but he did not get up from his sofa. "'You've got everything,' he protested. "'I haven't another thing that—you oughtn't to lie to me like that.' the fat man reproved him. "'How about that piece of property on Temple Street? But you can't sell that kind of real estate by phone like stocks and bonds,' Newbrith objected. "'Not for immediate cash.' "'You can,' the fat man insisted, "'especially if you're willing to let it go for half of what it's worth, like you are. Maybe nobody else could, but you can. Everybody knows you're crazy, and anything you do won't surprise them.' Newbrith held his seat, stubbornly looking at the floor. The fat man piped, "'Bill!' The brutish man shuffled toward the sofa. Newbrith cursed into his moustache, got up, and followed the waddling mountain into the hall. There was silence in the drawing-room. Bill and Tom held the door. The servants sat along their wall, variously regarding one another, the men at the door, and the four on the other side of the room. Mrs. Newbrith fidgeted in her chair, looking regretfully at the fragments of her vial, and picked at her magenta frock with round-tipped fingers that were pinkly striped with the marks of rings not long removed. Her husband rested wearily beside her, a cigar smoldering in his pale mouth. Their daughter sat a little away from them, looking stony defiance from face to face. Hugh Trait, back in his corner, had lighted a cigarette and sat staring through smoke at his outstretched crossed legs. His face, every line of his pose, affected an introspective preoccupation with his own affairs that was flawed by an unmistakable air of sulkiness. 
Twenty minutes later the elder Newbrith rejoined his family. His face was purple again. His hair was rumpled. The right corner of his moustache had vanished completely. The fat man, stopping beside his associates at the door, was forcing a thick black pistol into a tight pocket. "'You!' the old man barked at Trait before sitting on his sofa again. "'You're hired!' "'Very well, sir,' the young man said with so little enthusiasm that the words seemed almost an acceptance of defeat. The fat man departed. The red-faced man grinned at Hugh and called to him with large friendliness. "'I hope you ain't going to be too hard on us, young fellow.' The brutish man glowered and snarled. "'I'm going to smack that punk yet.' After that there was silence again in the gold-and-white room, though the occasional sound of a closing door, of striding, waddling, dragging footfalls came from other parts of the house, and once a telephone bell rang thinly. Hugh Trait lit another cigarette and did not restore the box of safety matches to his pocket. Presently Mrs. Newbrith coughed. Old Newbrith cleared his throat. A vague stuffiness came into the room. Trait leaned forward until his mouth was not far from the white head of the old man on the sofa. "'Sit still, sir,' the young detective whispered through immobile lips. "'I've just set fire to the sofa.' Old Newbrith left the burning sofa with a promptness that caught his legs unprepared, scrambled out into the middle of the floor on hands and knees. His torn moustache quivered and fluttered and tossed in gusts of bellowed turmoil. "'Help! Fire!' "'Damn your idiocy! Michael! Batty! Water! Fire! You young idiot! Michael! Batty! It's arson! That's what it is!' were some of the things he could be understood to shout, and the things that were understood were but a fraction of the things he shouted. Tumult, after a moment of paralysis at the spectacle of the master of the house of Newbrith yammering on all fours, took the drawing-room. Mrs. Newbrith screamed, the line between servants and served disappeared as the larger group came to the smaller's assistance. Flames leaped into view, red tongues licking the arm of the sofa, quick red fingers catching at drapes, yellow smoke like blonde ghost's hair growing out of brocaded upholstery. A thin youth in chauffeur's livery started for the door, crying, "'Water! We've got to have water!' Stolid Tom waved him back with a pair of automatic pistols, produced expertly from the bosom of his ill-fitting garments. "'Go back to your bonfire, my lad,' he ordered with friendly firmness, while the brute called Bill slid a limber dark blackjack from a hip pocket and moved toward the chauffeur. The chauffeur hurriedly retreated into the group fighting the fire. The younger Newbrith and a servant had twisted a thick rug over the sofa's arm and back and were patting it sharply with their hands. Two servants had torn down the burning drape, trampling it into shredded black harmlessness under their feet. The elder Newbrith beat a smoldering cushion against the top of a table, sparks riding away on escaping feathers. While the old man beat, he talked, but nothing could be made of his words. Mrs. Newbrith was laughing with noisy hysteria beside him. Around these principles the others were grouped. Servants, unable to find a place to serve, Brenda Newbrith looking at Hugh Trait as if undecided how she should look at him, and the young man himself frowning at the charred corpse of his fire with undisguised resentment. "'What in the world's the matter now?' the fat man asked from the door. "'The young fellow's been cutting up,' Tom explained. 
He touched off a box of matches and stuck them under a pillow in the corner of the sofa. Seemed like a harmless kind of joke, so I left him alone. The brutish man raised a transformed face, almost without brutality in its eager hopefulness. Now you'll leave me sock him, Joe, he pleaded. But the fat man shook his head. Mrs. Newbreath stopped laughing to cough. The elder Newbreath was coughing, his eyes red, tears on his wrinkled cheeks. A cushion case was limp and empty in his fingers. It had burst under his violent handling, and its contents had puffed out to scatter in the air, thickening in an atmosphere already heavy with the smoke and stench of burnt hair and fabric. "'Can't we open a door for a second? the younger Newbreath called through this cloud. "'Just enough to clear the air?' "'Now you oughtn't to ask me things like that,' Fat Joe complained petulantly. "'You ought to have sense to know we can't do a thing like that.' Old Newbreath spread his empty cushion cover out with both hands and began to wave it in the air, fanning a relatively clear space in front of him. Servants seized rugs and followed his example. Smoke swirled away, thinning toward the ceiling. White curls of fleece eddied about, were wafted to different parts of the room— the three men at the door watched without comment. "'I'm afraid this young man is going to make a nuisance of himself,' the fat man squeaked after a little while. "'You'll have to do something with him, Tom.' "'I'll leave the young fellow alone,' said Tom. "'He's all—' A white feather, fluttering lazily down, came to hang for a moment against the tip of Tom's red nose. He dabbed at it with the back of one of the hands that held his pistols. The feather floated up in the air current generated by the hand's motion— but immediately returned to the nose-tip again. Tom's hand dabbed at it once more, and his face puffed out redly. The feather eluded him, nestling between nose and upper lip. His face became grotesquely inflated. He sneezed furiously. The gun in the dabbing hand roared. Old Newbreath's empty cushion-case was whisked out of his hands. A hole like a smooth dime appeared in the blind down across the window behind him exclaimed the fat man. "'You ought to be careful, Tom. You might hurt somebody that way.' Tom sneezed again, but with precautions now, holding his pistols down, holding his forefingers stiffly away from the triggers. He sneezed a third time, rubbed his nose with the back of a hand, put his weapons out of sight under his coat, and brought out a handkerchief. "'I might have for a fact,' he admitted good-naturedly, blowing his nose and wiping his eyes. Remember that time Snohomish Whitey gunned that bank messenger without meaning to, all on account of being ticklish and having a button bust off his undershirt and slide down on the inside? Yes, the fat man remembered, but Snohomish was always kind of flighty. You can say what you want about Snohomish, the brutish man said, rubbing his chin reflectively with the blackjack, but he packs a good wallop with his left, and don't think he don't. That time me and him went round and round in the jungle at Sack, he made me like it even if I did take him, and don't think he didn't. "'That's right enough,' the fat man admitted. "'But still and all, I never take much stock in a man that can't take a draw on your cigarette without getting it all wet. Well, don't let these folks do any more cutting up on you.' And he waddled away. Hugh Trait, surrounded by disapproval, sat and stared at the floor for fifteen minutes. Then his face began to redden slowly. When it was quite red, he lifted it, and looked into the elder Newbreath's bitter eyes. "'Do you think I started it because I was chilly?' he asked angrily. "'Wouldn't it have smoked those crooks out? Wouldn't it have brought firemen, police?' The old man glared at him. 
Don't you think it's bad enough to be robbed without being cremated? Do you think the insurance company would have paid me a nickel for the house? Do you—' A downstairs crash rattled windows, shook the room, put weapons in the hands of men at the door. Feet thumped on distant steps, scurried overhead, stamped in the hall. The door opened far enough to admit a pale hatchet face. Ben, it addressed the cheerful man. Big Fat wants you. We've been ranked. Two shots close together sounded below. Ben, recently Tom, hurried out after the hatchet face, leaving the brutish Bill alone to guard the prisoners. He glowered threateningly at them with his little red-brown eyes, crouching beside the door, blackjack in one hand, battered revolver in the other. Another shot thundered. Something broke with a splintering sound in the rear of the house. A distant man yelled throatily, "'Put the slug to him!' In another part of the building a man laughed. Heavy feet were on the stairs, in the hall. Bill spun to the door as the door came in. Gunpowder burned diagonally upward in a dull flash. Metal buttons glistened against blue cloth, around, under, over Bill. His blackjack arched through the air, twisted end over end, and thudded on the floor. A sallow, plump man in blue civilian clothes came into the room, stepping over the policeman struggling with Bill on the floor. His hands were in his jacket pockets, and he nodded to Newbreth Sr. without removing his hat. "'Detective Sergeant McClurg,' he introduced himself. "'We nabbed six or seven of them, all of them, I guess. What's it all about?' "'Robbery!' "'That's what it's all about,' Newworth stormed. "'They seized the house at daybreak. "'All day they've held us here, prisoners in our own home. "'I've been forced to withdraw my bank balances, "'to sell stocks and bonds and everything that could be sold quickly. "'I've been forced to make myself ridiculous "'by demanding currency for everything, "'by sending God knows what kind of messengers for it. "'I've been forced to borrow money from men I despise.' I might just as well live in a wilderness as in a city that keeps me poor with its taxes for all the protection I've got. I haven't— We can guess what's happening, the detective sergeant said. We came as soon as Pentner gave us the rap. Pentner? It was a despairing scream. The old man's eyes rolled frenziedly at the bright round hole in the curtained window that concealed his neighbor's residence. That damned scoundrel! I hope he waits for me to thank me for his impudence in meddling in my business. I'd rather lose everything I've got in the world than be beholden to that. The detective sergeant's plumpness shook with an inner mirth. You don't have to let that bother you, he interrupted the old man's tirade. He won't like it so much either. He phoned in saying you had taken a shot at him while he was standing in his room brushing his hair. He said he always expected something like that would happen, because he knew you were crazy as a pet cuckoo and ought to have been locked up long ago. He said that, since you had missed him, he was glad you had cut loose at him, because now the city would have to put you away where you belonged. "'So you see,' came the triumph of Brenda Newbirth's voice, "'Mr. Trade is clever, and he did show you.' "'Eh?' was the most her grandfather could achieve. "'You know very well,' she declared, that if he hadn't set fire to the sofa, you wouldn't have burst the cushion, and the feathers wouldn't have tickled that man's nose, and he wouldn't have sneezed, and the gun wouldn't have gone off, and the bullet wouldn't have frightened Mr. Pentner into thinking you were trying to kill him, and he wouldn't have phoned the police, and they wouldn't have come here to rescue us. That stands to reason. Well, then, how can you say that Mr. Trait's cleverness didn't do it? Detective Sergeant McClurg's plumpness shook again. 
Old Newbrith snorted and fumbled for words that wouldn't come. The younger Newbrith murmured something about the house that Jack built. The young man, who had been clever, turned a bit red and had a moment of trouble with his breathing, but the bland smile his face wore was the smile of one who wears honestly won laurels easily, neither overvaluing nor undervaluing them. "'I think it's wonderful,' the girl assured him, "'to be able to make plans that go through successfully "'no matter how much everybody tries to spoil them from the very beginning.' "'Nobody could find a reply to that, if one were possible.' "'You've been listening to The Sign of the Potent Pills by Dashiell Hammett. "'From his early days of writing pulp detective fiction,' Hammett would go on to write the Thin Man novels, The Glass Key, Red Harvest, and a host of Hollywood screenplays. Mystery writers of subsequent generations have been proud to name Hammett as an inspiration for their work. In 1995, four out of five of his novels made the top 100 mystery novels of all time as selected by the Mystery Writers of America. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, please stay safe, all the best. <laughs>